to be back with you again. And um, this time, thankfully, without all the pressure and stress of having an assessment right in front of me. So thank you for uh, inviting me back to come and deliver the Word of God to you this morning. Uh, I'd like to, first of all, actually start our time with the reading of God's Word. As we were just singing, uh, it is truly our chart and our compass. And so I want us to uh, give that priority as we enter into this time of hearing the Word preached. So I'd like to go ahead and invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1. And this morning we'll be reading from John 1, uh, verses 14 through verse 18. This right here is the holy word of God given to us in love. It is forever faithful and true. And the word of God uh, says the following to us in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. To that same effect, let's go ahead and pray, and pray that Christ would make himself known to us by his Holy Spirit through this reading and now preaching of the word concerning him. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you've given us this time to um, sit below the authority of your word and to hear your word preached over us from your heart of love over us, O God. And so we ask that in this time that your word would wash over us anew, that it would Uh, cleanse our hearts and make us see Christ in all of his fullness. We ask, O God, that we would come to hear this word read and preached over us with hearts of love, hearts of, of eagerness, desiring to hear from you, to hear your own voice speak to us through these words that are inspired and faithful and true and never changing. God, we thank you that you have given us this time to step away from the busyness of our lives and to um, uh, enter into this time of just corporate worship where we, again, submit our own hearts in humility before you, asking even in confidence now, O Lord, before your throne of grace, that you would impart to us wisdom from on high to hear and to receive the word of Christ with joy and with love and with utmost affections for you. And so we pray all this in Christ's holy name, by the power of the Spirit, before you, our great Heavenly Father. Amen. Amen. Well, I have one uh, question for you all as we begin to dive into this passage this morning, and it's this very simple question. Have you ever considered yourself to be a seeker after glory? And I don't mean that in the negative sense. I mean that in a very positive way. Have you sought or pursued glorious things in this life? I believe that all of us are driven by a sense of amazement and discovery. We desire to see beauty on display, and we even pursue moments of sheer childlike wonder in this life. It's no wonder why so many of us travel, like even James and Heidi and Ken and myself this past week, to take in new sights, to experience new things. It is why we pick up new hobbies that excite us and excite us with new interest even. 
It is why so many tourists happen to come to your own figurative backyard here in the Williamsburg area, namely Bush Gardens and Colonial Williamsburg, from all over the country, just to see these new things and take in new sights. Because we are, each one of us, an impressionable people. We desire to be impressed. We desire to see glory revealed and on display before us. We are irresistibly drawn to both glorious things and glorious places and even people alike. But have you ever considered that this desire to pursue or seek after glorious things is actually in and of itself a gift, a gift from God even? See, the purpose of declaring God's own glory is etched into the very fabric of our own hearts. It is written in the skies above, as we see in Psalm 8 and other places throughout Scripture. And even the rocks, the lowest of all of creation itself, are fashioned and designed to cry out the glory of God if we, his people, should ever fail to do so. So the Lord has artfully and craftfully designed us to be captivated by what is most astounding, namely himself. And to discover that our true chief and highest end or purpose in this life is to seek the glorification of him and so enjoy him forever fully. After all, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his only son to display the fullness of his glory by taking upon the fullness of humanity in his own flesh. This mystery that we often proclaim around Christmas time, and really we should be proclaiming throughout the entire year as we're doing this morning, is, of course, the most remarkable event in all of human history, is it not? The mysterious event that God in love became man for our sake. That is why John 1 verse 14 is one of the most well-known and well-read and and well-beloved verses in the entire Bible. It's here in John chapter 1 verse 14 that we see Jesus, who is the eternal word of God, not just declare, but prove himself to be, in effect, the visible manifestation of God's glory, the totality of God's glory even, full of both grace, and truth, as we read here. And it is in his revealing of himself to be the source of both grace and truth that I believe he makes us to become people who are marked by the same as we reflect Christ Jesus to the world around us. Now, beginning here in verse 14, we read that the word became flesh, that also he dwelt among us. This truth, even though I'm sure we've all heard it a million times, admittedly, is indeed the most astounding thing in all the world, that our God would dwell with us. Who can adequately describe this? I know I sure can't, especially within a short amount of time to deliver the word of God to you. Countless songs, books, blogs, sermons have all been written, striving to capture the essence of this true historic event. The word of Christ, the word of God, rather, took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. But words simply fail us to convey the mystery of God's will and the power of his being and the deepest love rooted in his own heart of compassion toward us to do such a thing. This is largely why, even during Jesus' own ministry on this earth, his own disciples were slow of hearing and slow to comprehend the magnitude of this event before their eyes, Christ, the word in the flesh before them. 
That's why the hearts of the disciples, even after the resurrected Christ appeared to them on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, it is why their hearts began to burn within them as Christ began to slowly reveal his fulfillment of this promise from the Old Testament, revealed now in his own being before their eyes. And it is why the church has never ceased to continue telling this true story of the Word who took on human flesh. See, friends, in Christ's incarnation, we see the divine take up new residency in human nature. In Christ, we see the Son perfectly maintain the fullness of his entire godhood while, as our confession says, the Westminster Confession says that he took to himself a true body and even a reasonable soul being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, and yet mysteriously so, born of her, yet without sin. Who can really grasp this idea? Even more astounding than Christ's active incarnation is the eternal purpose of the triune God behind this action. See, his incomprehensible purpose from before time began was to mediate for us in his coming to earth. That is to say that he, in his mediation between God and man, communicates all of his power and glory and honor and all of his brilliance to us so that we might find him to be worthy of all of these things and so enjoy him as our God. Our God who is, in fact, the source of all life and truth and grace. And yet in our weaknesses and in our sin especially, Christ Jesus through his taking on humanity for our own sake, doesn't just fully understand our human condition, which in and of itself is marvelous. He doesn't just understand our infirmities and our weaknesses. He meets us in the midst of these things, even now by his Holy Spirit, and and tends to us with his healing hand of mercy, even as Pastor Ken was just praying for us. We know the goodness of God even as we commune with him by prayer. Just how can he do this for us? Well, he does this by reconciling us sinners with the holy God in his own divine person. See, in the words of the Westminster Larger Catechism, Christ was and continues to be both God and man in two entirely distinct natures, and yet, again, mysteriously so, one person forever. The glory of Christ come in the flesh is that he didn't just come to take away our sin which is the essence of the gospel, of course. But he continues to live to intercede for us as our great high priest. And so every time that we sin, he proves himself to be the one who is ready and eager and pleased to pursue us and receive us and apply the salve of his gospel to our own rebellious hearts. In our moments of weakness and our feelings of lostness, He comforts us by his Holy Spirit's presence, assuring us of his unending care and provision to meet us as our ever-present help in time of need. And when our hearts cry out by the Holy Spirit who lives within us as believers to the heart of our Father in heaven, crying out, Abba, Father, it is Christ himself who knows us, who's with us, who attends us as we learn to behold him and to commune with him by faith all the more. This is why John, the apostle, uses that word dwelt here in John chapter 1, verse 14. 
Now, when you hear the word dwelt, I imagine a lot of us are thinking, okay, what exactly does that mean? It's not really a word that we often use nowadays. The word dwell, aside from maybe our dwelling place, but even that seems a little archaic and old-fashioned. But the word dwell means so much more than just a place that we live, or a place that we take up habitation, if you will. (laughs) It's really a word that in the original language was just brimming with meaning. In fact, in the original language, here in the Greek, it's the same exact root word as the Hebrew word, where we get the Old Testament idea of Shekinah or tabernacle, where God dwells with us. It's that same word, Shekinah, that speaks of God's Shekinah glory that inhabited the temple of his praise. The Shekinah glory of God, which we may have heard of before, I know I have at least before this time, but the Shekinah glory of God was the very real presence of God that he made known to his people as he commanded his own to worship him through song and through the reading of the scriptures and through the proclamation of God's law under the old covenant and through the sacrifices that were made to demonstrate genuine remorse and true repentance of their sin. I love the way that the late theologian J.B. Lightfoot described this idea of the Shekinah glory of God, both in the Old Testament, but especially here as it's packed into this one small verse. He said this in quote, that the Shekinah glory of God that was seen in the temple was, as he says, the visible symbol of the Almighty God, the heart of the religious worship of the Israelites, the center and the focus of the entire nation of Israel. And so furthermore, the Shekinah glory of God that Israel experienced there, visibly before their own eyes at the temple, was the power of the word of the Lord. The same word of the Lord that we spoke of last week, given to them even ahead of time was the word of the Lord, the divine majesty himself who met with them there in the temple. So the temple under the old covenant served as a physical place where believers during that time, before Christ coming to earth, could look and go and behold in their own flesh, so to speak, and be reminded on a continual basis that God was with them. It was a promise of Christ coming to earth way even ahead of time as they went to the temple. And so this communion with God that was experienced in uh, the temple, though, was actually even pre-signified well before even Solomon's temple. See, when we look to places like the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, we see there the first kind of temple, if you will, that served as the... uh, revelation of God's presence with his people. And so the Garden of Eden and that that presence of God was again yet though witnessed at that physical temple that was built by Solomon's own hands and consecrated by God himself, where God brought his Shekinah glory down upon it in due time. Uh, Furthermore, the rescue of God's people during the time of Noah and his family in the ark itself, that same idea of rescue was experienced in the worship of Israel as they attended the temple. The presence of God is seen by all the Israelites during their time of wandering in the desert when they followed the cloud of direction as they fled from Egypt. And even that same cloud which then hovered over the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle itself was seen yet again by the high priest once a year as he went into the Holy of Holies. 
the ceremonies of cleansing, the sacrifices of repentance, the yearning for God by the people of Israel in due time through their fasting and through their prayer and through the dependency upon God's law for obedience to his name all prompted the nation-state of Israel to revel in the glory of God. And all of this was manifested there at the physical temple several centuries before the time that Christ came to earth. I imagine all of you know what happened not so long thereafter. Even after the Shekinah glory of God appeared to them and God made his presence known to them as he dwelt with them and they believed upon him, the Israel nation itself began to drift away from their God. And not just drift, they they actually chased after other gods. And they even defamed the holy name of their God before the nations from which God had rescued them. Sins that they committed that even put the sins of the other nations to shame. So the Shekinah glory of God, as he said would happen, soon departed from that physical temple. This departure is vividly described for us in places like Ezekiel chapter 10, where we see God basically sap his own presence or glory away from the temple as a response to their own continued rebellion against him. In Ezekiel 10, we see described for us that the brilliance of his glory left the people of Israel as they turned their hardened wills against God and abandoned him and even, quite literally speaking, divorced him in their own hearts as they committed not just a desertion but adultery against God with and through their own unspeakable pet sins. Again, sins that even put the nations around them to shame. But God didn't just leave them without witness or without his presence. He proclaimed well in advance, even in Ezekiel 10, to believing Israel, that one day the Shekinah glory of himself, his glory revealed, would indeed return in the person of the Messiah himself. Now, if you're a note taker, I invite you to write these passages down. I won't go into them now for the sake of time, but these are wonderful passages to look at where God promises well in advance this very thing of the Messiah who would come and fulfill the temple. Haggai 1, verse 8, Zechariah 2, verse 10, and Ezekiel 43, verse 7. All three of these passages, and so many more, really, all speak of God's eagerness to come yet once more and dwell with his people, but not just on a temporary basis there in the temple, but for all eternity. In Zechariah 2, for instance, the divine word of God spoke to Israel in advance in verse 10, where he says, and this is the word of God speaking here, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, and behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And the word of God himself, Christ Jesus, did come and dwell in their midst and our midst. As he took on flesh and residency with us, and put his majestic glory back on full, unbridled, unending display before his own people. This is why John 1 verse 14 says in very personal language, we have seen his glory. Excitement, John the Apostle goes on to say, we have not just seen his glory, this is glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So friends, this Shekinah glory, the glory of God revealed for us, is displayed in none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the source 
of both grace and truth. And so this leads us to our second and our final point for this morning, that as we seek Jesus and as we seek to behold him by faith, we will inevitably become a people who are marked by this grace and truth that we have received in Christ. And we cannot therefore help but reflect this grace and truth wherever we then go in this life. It's been often said before that we end up becoming what we behold. I'm sure many of us have probably heard that phrase before. I believe that this is true, in part at least, as we see that as we set our minds on the things above where Christ is seated, we will end up not just beholding Christ, but becoming more and more like him. This is important as a word of application for us, especially as a church plant. See, as a young church plant, even just three years old or so at this point, you and I together have the privilege of even here and now, even in this hour, of laying the groundwork for our worship of God going forward. See, we will inevitably become whatever it is that we behold. If it's anything less than Christ, we will become more and more like that. And so our focus here now, even this very day, will determine our own identity for years to come as Church of the Harvest. Now, there are so many things that can be considered good defining traits for young church plants. In fact, Ken and Kathy and I were talking about that last night. So many good things that we could take on, but they might not be the best thing. See, we could be a church that is only defined by our inner love for the Word and become too heady in our theology. We might be a church that could become defined by having hearts of humility and become people that don't begin to put our faith together, holistically speaking. We could have hands ready to serve the broken and the oppressed, but then we could maybe err into the side of social justice. We could desire to see biblical justice, right justice, and truth upheld, but forget the heart of God's love for people, especially the lost. And we could even become defined by our compassionate grace displayed in our speech and in our body language toward each other, but end up losing again the totality of the whole counsel of God applied to us as we learn to speak the truth in love as well. I believe that we will not be a people who are marked by God's grace and truth, both simultaneously though, unless we are primarily seekers after God's glory by the power of the Spirit in the face of Jesus Christ as we submit to him and his lordship. Now, my past 15 years of church and various pastoral ministries, I've seen so many churches uh, rise and even fall, in all honesty, based upon their one priority as a church body. And their one priority, the most important thing is this, the praise of God's glorious grace as being preeminent in all of our worship, not just publicly, but even privately. And so the nature of a church plant, and I think this is why so many of us are even here this morning, is that church planting is a new thing. It's, it's a fresh start for many of us even. Even the idea of church planting fills us with ideas of anticipation as we seek glory again, so to speak. But all of us here, I believe, to my knowledge at least, have been a part of previous churches where we've seen various successes or even failures in large part. We have collectively seen churches that have been wrongly driven by pragmatistic ideals, or by man-centered church growth models, 
or by seeking to gain popularity around the surrounding community, and all the while by leaving God's unchanging truth and real life-changing sovereign grace by the wayside, all for momentary favor and earthly success. And I pray that we would never become that church here at Harvest. And so, as Kenneth shared, and as I begin to serve with you all on a more consistent basis from this point forward even, Harvest will now be actually the fifth church plant that I've had the pleasure and privilege of being a part of and, and leading in some form or fashion. And so as I begin to work with you all and get to know you and, and love on you and God's good timing, my continued prayer is that God's praise above all else would be front and center in all that we do. See, our church and our focus really as a church plant even in the coming months, and especially in the coming years, will determine not just who we are, what our identity is here as Church of the Harvest, or even our own reputation within the community as we grow and continue to grow in number, as we are already seeing just in the last couple of weeks. Our focus will determine our outcome as a church. And so the question that remains for us is this. Will we, as Church of the Harvest, ARP, be a church that, first and foremost, bears witness to Christ in the midst of our praise. Coming back to our text here, we see this arise again in John 1, verse 15 and following. See, in our passage, it refers once again to John the Baptizer, which we went into in great detail last week. And last Sunday, we saw that John the Baptizer came to bear witness to Christ as the eternal word of God in the flesh. And here in verse 15, we see that he specifically declared that Christ was indeed, and this is so important, Christ was before him. But John the baptizer wasn't just talking about time or chronological order, if you will. When he said that Christ was first, he said what he meant and he meant what he said. He meant that Christ was the preeminent one, the one with absolute authority in all things, the ancient of days revealed now in the flesh, the only mediator for his people, the true prophet, priest, and king of God. And while this verse here in verse 15 may seem parenthetical to us in the greater context of the passage, and even has parentheses around it for a lot of our translations, like in the ESV, we must realize that this statement here is core and fundamental to our belief as a church. Christ must be first. He must be preeminent. So as a way of application, is Christ first in our own lives? Is Christ first in our families? Is he first in our working and in our living alike? Is he first in our speech and in our conduct? And for our own sake as a church, most importantly, is he first here at Harvest? Friends, do we devote ourselves not just to the public worship that we experience here for all of its goodness here just alone on Sundays, but do we also experience true unbridled worship in both our private worship and our family worship alike with one another each day of the week? Verse 16 continues on to tell us that it is from the fullness of Jesus that we have all received grace upon grace, grace to even see Christ on a daily basis. For as it goes on to say, the law was given through the conduit of Moses, and that's the important caveat there, the conduit, who was a spokesperson for God. 
but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ as the divine agent or source of grace and truth himself. Our text goes on to tell us that, of course, no one has ever seen God. If you ever come across somebody who tells you that they have seen God, you might want to run very quickly from that person. It might be a little uh, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, if you will. But Jesus Christ, who was eternally in the bosom of the Father, eternally beloved and praised and honored and adored by all the hosts of heaven, this Jesus, he, the text says, has made God the Father known to us. We see Jesus by faith as he is shown to us in the scripture. We end up seeing the invisible God for who he is. So, friends, as we continually learn to see Christ all the more fully through his word read and preached and believed upon and seen for us, even here in the sacrament in a brief moment, we will see God all the more fully. See, the person and work of Jesus Christ, he has literally exegeted, as the word here says, or fully expounded everything that we may ever desire to know about our Father in heaven. Letting this word of Christ dwell in our hearts by faith, he is faithful to transform us into a people who are marked now, not by sin or by weakness or our own dispositions toward what is inglorious, if you will. But rather, we'll become a people who are marked by his goodness and his righteousness. A people who are undeserving and yet declare his glorious praise to all around us. And so in effect, the world around us, will also be made to see us for who we are in Jesus. They'll begin to see us as beloved children of God, sons and daughters, living stones, as First Peter tells us, that together form the temple of God, even seen here on this earth. So, friends, know that there is a much greater attraction here in our greater Williamsburg and James County area. We have a much greater attraction than just simply Colonial Williamsburg or Bush Gardens in our own backyard. We have more than just the campus of William and Mary to Boston or West Point or the York River or Gloucester, wherever it is that you might live yourselves. Here in this little part of Toano, Virginia, we have before our very eyes a center that is made and purposed for glory, a glory center, if you will. And it's here, right here, in your own midst right around you. It's you. It's the church. It's the bride of Christ, the family of God. And so God is glorified in this place, and I want you to be encouraged in that. As you yourselves are being joined all the more by the word of Christ and by prayer to and with one another, we need each other. He is glorified in our worship that resounds here at this small building that we are thankful to have, honestly. In the midst of your spirit-filled love and charity toward one another, your worship before our holy God is a pleasing, and I hope you know this, it's a fragrant offering of praise every single Sunday. It's the very aroma of Christ to a lost and dying world, and it is so aromatic, especially to those who are being and who will, in God's good, sovereign plan, be saved through the ministry that we are all a part of here at Church of the Harvest. And so as we conclude, I want you to dream a little bit with me, just for a brief moment. See, as we at Harvest continue to grow, again, I've 
seen it just in the past few Sundays of visiting here. I'm seeing it right before my eyes. But as we continue to grow both in numbers and in size and in influence even, Lord willing, within our community, what will we become known by? Become known before our neighbors as a charitable and Christ-centered and hospitable people. Will we be those who attract others to come and to see the goodness of God and how we demonstrate the love and goodness first shown to us through our Savior? Will we be so marked by his grace and truth that we cannot help but then reflect this same grace and truth that we have received to those who have yet to see and believe upon this Savior? Will we be those who desire to see God's kingdom come and his will be done as more and more and more churches are planted, Lord willing, even through this, our ministry here together. Especially down the road in time, or more literally up the road, Lord willing, (laughs) as we continue to expand in our reach for the sake of God's praise. And finally, will we be those of whom it is said that of us, God dwells with them in their midst. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have given us your word of truth to lead us to a knowledge of the truth, to receive your truth with love and with meek hearts. We ask, you, oh God, that even in this time, as your word has been read and preached, that we would not just, in this one moment alone, dwell upon the riches of Christ, but that we would continue to be refreshed spiritually by faith and the knowledge of you, our great God and Savior, that we would hold this treasure in jars of clay, broken and beaten down as we are, imperfect and blemished even as we are, so that the treasure of Christ would be made known here in this greater area of Williamsburg and James County and New Kent and beyond. So we pray this all in your holy and powerful and majestic name. Amen.